welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Well, first thing, I want to thank a listener and a friend and a colleague at a charity at which I am on the board for giving me a three-month, I think it's three months, subscription to the tablet, the UK's journal magazine of politics and religion that goes back way back to 1840 around the time that Cardinal Newman was discerning his conversion to the Catholic Church. My sense in what I have read is that it is a little bit left of center in its politics and views of the faith, but I am glad to be reading and listening about all sorts of thoughts and ideas about how we trek through this life. And so I thank him very much for the gift. I am scribbling notes of some of the things that I'm reading about, uh, including about the time around the beginning of Vatican II and some of the people who were the progenitors of where we are today, including a Cardinal Sunin's stir the juices for future programs and questions and possible areas of discussion here and elsewhere in my life. I've had difficulty this week determining what I was going to feature as the subject, but getting that subscription to the tablet triggered something, and the fact that I am, quote, more of a conservative than a left or liberal religious person, and probably politically too, also triggered a thought about where I'd like to go this week in talking with you. Now, when I express an opinion related to the church's teaching, say, on abortion, and that opinion, at least as far as I can tell, is in accord with the still extant teaching on the books, as it were, I get a bit of flack for being a lector and a server at the masses at my parish, which is all very post-Vatican II and anathema to anything before 1962. So here I am enjoying, if you will, from some people's point of view, the fruit of Vatican II to be able to be a lector, to be able to be a server as a woman, And here I am, darn it, taking conservative views of the church's positions, which actually, I have to say, aren't conservative. They are the still 2,000-year-old dogma and truths of the church. I think that it is a fair critique in many ways. And it has and will continue to give me pause. But I should point out that something like abortion is very different from the ability of a woman to be a a lector or a server in the Novus Ordo Mass. They are in a similar bailiwick, but they really are different discussions. Nonetheless, I get that people see it as a contradiction, because truthfully, I have to say, I sometimes see it as a contradiction, but I have to say that it wasn't out of any feminist mission that I became a server or a lector or for that matter an attorney which I have been 
and it wasn't out of any feminist mission that I didn't marry and have children. If I were to be absolutely honest with myself and with you, I'd say that while I've led a good life and have had an interesting life, I have not led the ideal life of a woman. And I'm not talking philosophically here. I'm talking how I feel about it. I might be called an accidental feminist, if I am a feminist at all, in the terms of how the society posits it, which is not how I would favor being considered a feminist. So, if it won't bore you too much and you haven't already gone on to something else for today, let me talk about how I got to be a woman somewhat uneasily becoming and acting as a lecturer and a server, but at the same time feeling as if it is where God put me. God gave me a gift. Now, I'm sure he gave me other gifts besides this one, but this is the one that stands out in my mind, my soul, as a sure gift from God. And as my life has progressed, it has become clear to me that he expected me to hone it and expected me to use it. And to the extent I've done much well in my life or much that might even be morally good, I think I've used my voice in a way that indicates my recognition and use of the gift he has given me. Let me add that with regard to this gift, the way I see it, the way it is pictured in my mind, it is as if the Lord's hand has been on my back with regard to pushing me in different directions when it comes to the ability to speak, to lecture, to be a lawyer, all of it, because none of it was something that I set out to do. It begins in a galaxy far, far away, the Bronx. I'm a six-year-old at the Academy of Mount St. Ursula, the last of the classes of the grammar school, and I am told that I have to go to a speech class because I have a lisp. And I go to the speech class. And then, when my new tooth grows in, I don't have a lisp anymore. After that, my grades in reading comprehension and speech, but never in mathematics, soars when there are school plays in grammar school, and then also in high school, I'm always tapped to be the narrator, which I do not like to be because I would like to be one of the actors or actresses in the actual play. But no, because of the way I speak, I am always the narrator. I'm also one of those kids that is so straight and narrow, so afraid of violating rules that I never complain or argue about much of anything. And in those days, I didn't have much of a sense of humor either. It's around those times, um, say sophomore in high school, age of 15, that I'm in a class. I think it was a considered, a, not a speech class, but a class where you would learn how to present yourself publicly as a speaker. And that class was with, I believe, someone named Mrs. Kadir. I think her first name was Judith. And I really liked her. And what she had us all do is read a poem into a tape recorder, and then she would critique how we did it. The poem that I read, and I remember it as if it was yesterday, was To a Waterfowl by William Cullen Bryant. 
whither amidst falling dew I'll glow the heavens with the last steps of day, far through the rosy depth dost thou pursue thy solitary way. It's a religious poem, really, because it's about consideration of God and the paths we take and the path this bird is taking, what's going to happen to it, that there's some power that cares for this creature and for the rest of us. I can't remember Mrs. Kadira's exact words, but she definitely suggested that my path might be in the area of speaking, of doing something where the use of my voice articulation was going to have some part. These were the days of my lapse Catholicism. Well, it was probably a couple of years later that that happened, maybe 1718. But I didn't give much thought to what Mrs. Kadira said after that moment in class. And I certainly didn't give any thought to my giving glory to God with the use of my voice. Kick forward four years from that time with Mrs. Kadira, and I'm at college, and the college has a radio station, and I had given no thought to being part of that radio station, but I had, and I still have, the very same friend who was very interested in a young man who worked at the college radio station. I don't know if she remembers this, but I do because I was the one who was kind of her wing woman. While she communed with the young man, I went on an audition to be a classical music host on the WFUV classical music concert, which meant a preparation of something like a year, simply saying, you are listening to WFUV, the radio voice of Fordham University. After a time, I was doing the classical music show, a couple of rock shows, when we were allowed to do rock shows, because this was public service radio, I got an FCC license so that I could turn on the transmitter, and I did a poetry show, even though I knew absolutely nothing about poetry. Well, clearly, while again I wasn't thinking about it, this gift he had given me, this natural gift of speech, I was honing it. I was developing it. I was learning how to read cold when I had to, because in those days, there was still something called rip and read news. You take it off the AP and you read it, maybe with some quick edits, on the news. I had always planned on being a lawyer, even from the age of 14, for reasons that here, many years later, are completely elusive to me, as I was never a person who liked confrontation, so it's the last kind of job for a person like that. But now, after working in radio and having gotten to be part of a comedy show that I even did a little writing for um, a couple of episodes here and there, I was now torn between becoming a lawyer and going into the entertainment industry, which alarmed my father, who said to me, what are you going to live on? There came a time, not too long after, where his question resonated with me, and I did indeed go to law school. And when I moved out to California some years later, I still kind of harbored the desire to be a writer or an entertainment person, but I pursued the career as a lawyer. So that I could avoid confrontation and avoid public speaking, I had hoped to do something behind the scenes, you know, be a research lawyer, a, law, a clerk lawyer, you know, the kind of person who maybe clerks for a judge. But that didn't work out. It ended up that I 
was doing trials. I ended up doing trials for many years on and off in a very specialized area of practice that is ethics law and the prosecution of errant attorneys. And thus, I had to learn to verbalize not only from a prepared script, if you will, that is, whatever preparation you made to do a trial, but to be able to think on my feet and get out a sentence that sounded relatively logical. By this time, I had gone back to the Catholic faith, and I was at a parish for, I don't know, a few years when I went to a Bible study inside the rectory. It was held by a lovely now late priest, Father Barr. We were doing a round robin of reading a passage from the Bible. I forget whether it was from Genesis or something like that. And then we would discuss the passage. I do recall that our pastor, George Parnassus, Monsignor George Parnassus, had been out taking his dog for a walk, and he came by and looked in on us, gave us an approving nod at having been doing a Bible study, and moved on. Now, to describe this particular priest is kind of to ask you to picture something or someone you might have seen in medieval times. He wasn't very tall, but he was lean, and he was dark in the sense that he had this such a serious look, and his eyes were deep, and they could, it seemed, look into your very soul. And if he disapproved of you, a single look from him could send chills through you you would know that you had transgressed. I got to know him a little bit, and at that point, over the years I got to know him very well, but at that time it was a slow process, and I was a little afraid of him, to tell you the truth. One day, not long after the Bible study, he, I think if my memory serves, from the sacristy, he peeked out into the sanctuary, and I was sitting in a pew, and there was the beckoning finger that I should come in and talk to him. I approached with the appropriate respect and caution because I didn't know what he was going to ask me. He asked if I would consider being a substitute lector when other lectors were not available. And at that time, there had been only one other woman lector. Monsignor Parnassus's view was the traditional one although he conformed with the requirements of the Novus Ordus. And he did not particularly believe in women being any part of the altar serving process. He would go only so far as lecturing, and only where he approved of the particular person, which was probably true of the men as well, but he was very much the director of who did and who did not read. As a returning Catholic, I didn't give much thought to the distinctions between the Novus Ordo and the pre-Vatican II religious liturgy. But one thing I did know is that I would abide by what this Monsignor requested of me. It was his parish. He had the right to do as he wanted in his parish. And so I became something of a floater. I would lecture at different masses, probably not at the very early mass because I was never a morning person, but at the 10.30, the 12.10, sometimes at the Saturday evening mass, and definitely sometimes at the 5.15 on Sundays. And then at some point I became one of the lectors, the permanent lectors, at the 12.10 mass, which was a perfect time for me because I could sleep in, 
go to Mass and then have my nice afternoon with friends or just languishing around after a hard work week. When Monsignor became ill and himself retired probably around the year 2000, we had a new pastor who was a bit more liberal, if you will, about women not only being lectors, but also serving at the Mass. But I stayed at the 1210, where Monsignor Parnassus continued to celebrate the Mass until he became too ill to do so, and the rule was that I just read, and I never questioned it. I should say I never questioned him. By this time, I understood the debate, and in fact, at some level, shared in it. I began to do reading on the concept of the altar Christus, the fact that Jesus had the opportunity to choose women to be his apostles, his presbyters, his priests, and chose not to do that. He gave women a venerated position, but not as priests. But I'm also a woman of modern times, and having become a lawyer, having taken care of myself for my whole life, I chafed at this parish where my pastor, well, now the retired pastor, didn't allow for that. People would say, go to another parish where you can do it. My attitude was that I wasn't there for me. And while, like some of the saints, and I'm not saying that I'm a saint, I'm about as far away from one as is possible, but like some of the saints, like a Teresa of Avila, given the direction of my life, the fact that I wasn't succeeding in having a married life, and it didn't look like I was going to have that success, there was a lot of sensibility that I was maybe drawn to the idea of a religious life, but none didn't seem to work for me. And I realized that if it were allowed, I might have considered studying for the priesthood. But I also understood that the church, the Catholic church in its fullness, wasn't just another organization where women get to break the glass ceiling. And the idea was for me to serve God, not for God to serve my needs in the sense of advancing within the church. With our next pastor, it became more of a thing that women were serving at the masses. And then after I retired in 2011, when this second pastor began to have physical illness of his own and needed help at the 1210 mass, I began, and I probably began a little bit before that, I fully began to help him at Mass, both as a lector and as a server. I had been at this parish since 1983, and it was 2011 when I began to do more than just lector. And you may not believe it, but I was not seeking this out. It was as if, once again, there was a hand on my back saying, I want you to do this. I don't feel this with pretty much anything, but in this I seemed to feel that that was what was happening. And as to being a lector, I became aware of the awesome aspect of my duty to strike a balance between being too dramatic and also being too conversational in order that not only the people listening, but that I were really hearing what was being read. And from a selfish point of view, truly selfish point of view, I can't tell you how much joy it gives me to do the reading. Both those Monsignors are now dead, 
for many years now, and I am blessed that I am still a lector at my parish, and that even through much of the pandemic, I have been able to do that because we've been able to have outdoor masses. As I watch the leadership of our church, the bishops, the cardinals, spew contradictory views of dogma of the church, as membership drops in terms of the modern church, while it is kicking up in communities like the FSSP, I find that my sensibilities are more toward those communities, even though I have not left mine. And to be completely honest, my own community is probably the most balanced combination of the Novus Ordo and traditional liturgy, despite the fact that it continues to have women lectors and servers, and thus where I remain. In all the years I have been at my parish, we have never been the guitar mass, entertainment up front, absent altar rail church. We still have our altar rail. We still have very traditional services, but in the Novus Ordo. Has my staying there been just a matter of comfort, or am I called to be there? Has God, let's say, ordained that I should be there? Still, when I read Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 7, I believe, I become acutely aware of what seems to be an obligation, as well as a pleasure, to be honest with you to continue to be a lector until he says, no more, you'll be familiar with it. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to speak to the weary a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard, my face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. He is near who upholds my right. If anyone wishes to oppose me, let us appear together. Who disputes my right, let him confront me. See, the Lord God is my help. Who will prove me wrong? Now, before you think I'm a complete megalomaniac, the only part that I actually think really applies to me is the part where the Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue, and I hope that my use of that well-trained tongue does speak to the weary, and I am often among the weary when I'm speaking the words. The rest, I haven't been persecuted, and I don't think I would do well under persecution. I hope that is not the case. But still, this part, that the Lord God is my help, he is my help. He is the only reason I survived to be absolutely candid. And because of the people he sends in my direction who have helped me, who have sustained me, because that is what he had them do for me, whether they knew it or not. So, for now, I abide the contradiction between my tendency towards traditional view of Catholicism, which quite frankly is the view of Catholicism, and the fact that I am doing something that is considered non-traditional and in some circles, many circles, considered anathema. I could be wrong, 
but this is the one place of my life where I am reasonably sure that I am listening to him, that he directed me to use my voice, to use my speaking capacity in a particular way. I didn't set out to do it. It seems to have just happened, but in this one area, I think I have cooperated. This much I can say. I unreservedly thank God for this gift. And so we end another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me, and this was really about Ordinary Old Catholic Me this time. So if you are enjoying these episodes, please go to the website, podbean.com, Ordinary Old Catholic Me, and hit favorite and or comment. I would love to get comments and maybe some ideas about shows I ought to do that you'd be interested in, thoughts, feelings, concerns, all of that. That would be lovely, and I will see you next week.